Thank you. Good morning, and what a great way to begin by singing words that are 500 years old and yet still as relevant as ever to our lives and to our faith. I have at the top of my notes a quote from the Roman poet Catullus, O seclum insapiens et infacitum, which means roughly translated, the times are bad and people are stupid, (laughs) which is more or less the sparks notes of my talk today, but the fact that it's by a Roman poet, a Latin poet, indicates that every generation has had more or less the same reaction. This is nothing new in a lot of ways. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher. I'm happy to say I have no spiritual authority over you whatsoever. I am merely a layman who is grateful to talk about the authority of scripture alone, scripture as an unalloyed source of truth and meaning that stands outside of ourselves, outside of ourselves as an external message from God that we seek to understand, that we seek to believe, and to which we seek to conform. This view of scripture alone was lost in the Middle Ages when scripture was combined with the so-called apostolic tradition of the church, and that led to significant abuses and heresies during the Middle Ages that the Reformation then sought to correct. So I propose this morning, I want to quickly overview some of those heresies from the Middle Ages and then pivot to our own day to ask the question, what new authorities challenge the word of God in the year 2021? Why is this important? Because I think it's unlikely that the average medieval man would have known that the majority of his religious practices had no basis in the Bible at all. He would not have known this He would have been blind to this fact. You see, every culture has a shared view of the world, and each worldview is susceptible to specific flaws. And as remarkable and colorful and beautiful as the medieval worldview was, it had its flaws, it had its idiosyncrasies. And from those areas sprang false teaching, wicked practice. Heresies don't just pop up randomly. They emerge from patterns and from trajectories. That doesn't excuse them from being heresies, but it does make them intelligible. We can understand where they came from, where they're headed. It seems to me that if we don't understand the causes and directions of contemporary heresies, then we probably won't recognize them for what they are. Instead, we will be lulled into the convenience of mixing scripture with the spirit of the age, which was precisely the error of the Middle Ages. When the president of the Southern Baptist Convention the head of our denomination, chastises his audience for overstating the biblical case against sexual sin and admonishes them to whisper about what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about and then clarifies that what he means is the Bible whispers about sexual sin and shouts about, of course, judgmentalism, religious pride. When we see this, it only reveals where we should be wielding a Bible sharper than any two-edged sword, we find ourselves armed with a wet pool noodle. And maybe that's because we don't really intend to fight. Well, let's start with the medieval worldview. We can spend some happy moments together bad-mouthing the Dark Ages. Always fun. And then we will have to face our own visage in the mirror. I'd like for you to imagine that you are living in the Middle Ages. Let me tell you about yourself. You may choose to be a man or a woman for this exercise. It is 2021, so your choice. (laughs) Your life is not easy. You might be a noble, but statistically, you're probably a peasant. So let's just say you're a peasant. 
If you survive infancy, which is not something you take for granted, you will probably die in your early 40s. I'm sorry, in your 40s or early 50s. You cannot read. You do go to Mass every Sunday, sometimes more often. And the liturgy of the Mass is in Latin. Now, whether or not you can understand the Latin actually depends on where you're from. If you're a peasant in Italy, France, Spain, Romania, then chances are you understand quite a bit because those are countries where the vernacular languages that are emerging slowly are rooted in Latin. They're Romance languages. So you can track pretty well with the Mass. However, if you are living in England before the year 1066, or in northern Germany, or in Poland, you understand almost nothing of the Mass. However, you still, you know what's going on when the priest holds up the host and pronounces the Latin formula. You know that the bread becomes the body of Jesus. You don't understand all the mechanics of this, but you have heard that the great philosophers in Paris and Rome and Milan have succeeded in synthesizing Aristotle's metaphysics with Christian theology to create a philosophical explanation for the miracle of the mass. That miracle being that the material properties of the bread remain, but its substance is annihilated and it's replaced by the substance of Christ's body. Of course, reformers like Zwingli and Cranmer would look at this and say, that's cute, where is that in the Bible? You are surrounded by death as a peasant. Illnesses, plagues are common. There are nonstop military skirmishes between the uh, jostling principalities of Europe. If you live in the north of Europe, there's always the threat of Viking invasion. I know that we Minnesotans look back with nostalgia upon, and fondness upon a time when defeat at the hands of the Vikings was something that people worried about. But uh, nevertheless, this was a real issue if you were living in the north of Europe, in England, for example. Uh, if you lived in the southeast or the southwest of Europe, there was always the threat of Arabic invasions, either coming up through the Iberian Peninsula, through Spain, or sweeping in from the Arabian Peninsula. And indeed, that's how Constantinople falls in, in 1453. And to cap it all off, every once in a while, the Pope calls for a crusade against the Turks in the Holy Land, which isn't likely to succeed, and it never does. Many of the people you have known and loved have died, and you are yourself face-to-face with your own mortality every hour of your life. You pray for those who have died because your priest tells you that they are in torment. They're not in hell, necessarily, but they are burning off the sins they committed during their life after their baptism. By praying for them, your priest tells you, you will reduce their time in purgatory, And so you do that, and you hope that many people will pray for you after you die. You are deeply religious, by which I mean, you believe that the world is a middle earth, that it is suspended between the cosmic spiritual realities of heaven and hell. You believe that you have a soul. You believe in angels and demons. You believe in the devil, and you are terrified of the devil. You believe that just as the physical body houses the spiritual soul, in the same way, physical objects can house spiritual qualities. And so, when your priest tells you that the bones of St. Agnes will heal you if you you touch them, you believe him. And you are more than happy to pay a small offering fee in exchange for this blessing. And if you have the audacity to approach your priest and to ask him, on what biblical authority could this be true? If he's a bad priest, he'll just slap you in the face and say, don't question the authority of the church. 
If he's a good priest, of which there were many, he might take down the big Latin Bible in the church and he might open it to 2 Kings and he might read you this passage. This is from 2 Kings. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, they saw a marauding band approaching. Now, I know we have no context for this, right? There's a burial happening. They're about to get raided by a raiding party. So they cast the body into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. In print and everything. Now, we know, we today, us actual people, we know that this one passage is a flimsy foundation on which to base the entire medieval relic industry. And even you, as a shrewd peasant, are probably suspicious that there are more bones of St. Agnes in circulation than could ever have belonged to a single individual. Nevertheless, the presupposition that the spiritual world and the physical world overlap and intermingle would have been unshakable in your mind. Let's take another example. The Middle Ages saw the emergence of the concept of courtly love, courtly love. This involved a knight or some uh, landed gentry uh, pledging love and loyalty to a noblewoman, a lady, a princess, sometimes a queen. Sometimes this woman was a maiden, unmarried, but often they were married, and this was not considered scandalous because the point of courtly love was that emphatically it was not to be consummated. The knight would then go out, live his life, and in the lady's name he would fight honorably. He would act with nobility and chivalry. He would often carry some token of his lady on his person. We, uh, we see this in the tamer versions of the Arthurian legends, the romance between Lancelot and Guinevere. Now, in some of the legends, they do consummate, but in some of them, they do not, and it's purely an idealized love, a courtly love. We see this in real life in the story of Abelard and Heloise. Have you heard these names? Abelard, young man, and Heloise, a young woman. They fall in love. True story. And her family does not approve, so they castrate Abelard, Rutro, so he becomes a monk, she becomes a nun, and they correspond for the rest of their lives, and we have their letters. You can go on Amazon, buy the letters of Abelard and Heloise, and read them. And this became, in the medieval imagination, the ideal of Uh, of platonic love, of love that is purely spiritual. The point of courtly love was to transcend the erotic. So back to you as a peasant now, okay, you're not a knight, you're not landed gentry, you can't go out and do great deeds of heroism and chivalry in the name of your lady. However, there is one lady who accepts even the humblest of men as champions. You can pledge your love and loyalty to her, and she is a great queen. She's the fairest maiden of all. She's the queen of heaven. She's the mother of God. And you can live your life in service to her, and in return, she will offer you her protection and her favor. This is where the cult of Mariology comes from. In the Middle Ages, we see reverence for Mary deepen into devotion and into worship. Invented doctrines asserted that Mary remained a virgin with no blemish on her purity. Her own conception is the the Immaculate Conception. I used to think the Immaculate Conception referred to Jesus' conception, but no, it's about Mary's conception. This is this invented doctrine during the Middle Ages, that Mary was conceived without sin, that she was a a pure and uh, perfect vessel to carry her child Jesus. And she now reigns in heaven and will hear your prayers, the claim went. 
The reformers, of course, would see no trace of this Mariology in the scriptures. A plain reading of the Bible indicates clearly that Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. Nothing indicates that Mary lived a perfect life. In fact, in her song, remember this in the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, the Magnificat is what we call it, the song at the time of the Annunciation. She refers to God as her savior. Mary needed to be saved, and she was saved in the same way as anyone else is saved, through repentance and through belief. In fact, the whole cult of Mary is both anticipated and rebuked in a passage in Luke 11. Just listen to this absolute body slam of Mariology. This is, uh, Jesus has just finished up the Sermon on the Mount, and it says this. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Back to you as a peasant. Finally, you are deeply respectful of tradition. You understand, rightly, that your civilization has been built on the ruins of a much older, much grander civilization, the Roman Empire, with its stunning aqueducts and its sublime temples. It's amazing feats of technology. You understand that when that empire fell, much knowledge was lost, and you therefore revere books, even though you you yourself cannot read. C.S. Lewis makes this point in The Discarded Image, which is like his academic work. The first chapter of Discarded Image, he points out that the characteristic of medieval man is that he's bookish. He is more bookish than modern man, even though very few medievals could read, and almost all modern men can read. Why are they more bookish? Because they valued books. Because books were more rare. Because so few people could read and write them. You, as a peasant, venerate the monks who devote their lives to copying manuscripts, whether that be old works by Plato or Plotinus, or the stuff that's hot off the press, or or hot off the quill, by um, William of Ockham, or Duns Scotus, or Thomas Aquinas. You know that books possess authority, and the greatest authority comes from the learned doctors of the church, from the popes of Rome, and from the Holy Bible itself. In all of this, you acknowledge yourself to be humble and ignorant, under the authority of men who are wiser and more holy than yourself. And it is this acknowledgement that tradition is authoritative that supported all the other heresies of the Middle Ages. It's precisely this point that the Reformers challenged. They were not naive about history, the Reformers. This was not the first time that a religious tradition had developed idiosyncrasies and embellishments that overwhelmed the essence of the original religion. This was exactly what had happened with Judaism. Between the Old and New Testaments, the Pharisees and rabbis had emerged as an intellectual class. Understandably, they they were no doubt determined to protect and maintain the character of Jewish religion in the face of Gentile occupation. But they had layered complex teachings and practices on top of the Jewish law. And that that was what Jesus criticized. Jesus' harshest condemnations are leveled against the scribes and the Pharisees. In vain do you worship me, he says, In Mark 7, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And many such things you do, Jesus says. The reformers did respect the Christian tradition, of course. They read the fathers. They affirmed the creeds. 
But they rejected the claim that there was a secret oral tradition handed down from the apostles, instantiated in the bishops of Rome, which stood on the same authoritative plane as the Bible? No. They were realists about human nature. They were aware that the gradual accumulation of speculative interpretations could choke out the gospel. Indeed, that it had. And they saw in the hierarchy of the Roman church an artificial construction masquerading as piety, but in reality, just a facade covering massive greed, corruption, avarice, pride. When they read the Bible, the reformers saw a text that validated itself. Apostles acknowledging the authority of other apostles. Gospel writers appealing to the authority of the prophets and psalms. Jesus himself grounding his claims in Moses, in the law, in the prophets, in the poetry, in every passage of scripture. They read and believed the passages that told them that scripture was breathed out by God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16, famously. And that the writers of scripture were the instruments of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. They affirmed what the early church fathers like Augustine and Ambrose believed, that God was the real author of the scriptures, and that in its most minute details, it was divinely authoritative and infallibly true. The Bible needed no verification of any kind from outside itself. It verifies itself. Its message is clear and understandable. Luther wrote this. He said, in sacred matters, There is no arguing or philosophizing. In theology, we must only hear and believe and be convinced at heart that God is truthful. This is our foundation. This is still Luther. Where the Holy Scripture establishes something that must be believed, there we must not deviate from the words as they sound, neither from the order as it stands. This recognition that Scripture alone is the final authority for Christian doctrine and practice came to be known as sola scriptura, scripture alone. And it's the first of the five solas because it's the key that unlocks the others. It's sometimes called the formal principle of the Reformation. If scripture is not a sufficient authority on its own merits for the establishment of doctrine, then there are no grounds for ever reforming anything. But if scripture is the final authority, then all the accretions of tradition Justification by works, transubstantiation, purgatory, mariology, they all ought to be judged by the light of the word. That brings to a conclusion our overview of the Middle Ages, ridiculously high level, but so it must be. We have to now turn the spotlight on ourselves. We've seen that the medieval worldview led to uniquely medieval heresies, and I think we'll find that today, 500 years after the Reformation, The center of authority in our culture has once again strayed from the scriptures. In fact, our culture looks on the Bible with suspicion, with contempt, often with outright hatred. And we've developed, and by we I mean our culture, American culture, maybe even us to some extent, we've developed a distrust of the very concept of authority. We resent anything that impinges upon us, anything that makes demands of us, anything that thwarts our desires, anything that supersedes us in a hierarchy. We hate that word, hierarchy. Anything that robs us of what we think we deserve. Our culture has abandoned external authority and has relocated it inside the individual human self. We are now the law givers. We are the shapers of reality. We are the creators. Glory to man in the highest, wrote the poet Swinburne. 
for man is the master of things. Now, in a way, this is nothing new. This is just one big echo of the serpent's promise in the garden. Remember that? He says, if you eat the fruit, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. I believe that the human heart is no more wicked now than it was in the second generation of humanity. However, our social imagination has decayed in new and profound ways since Eden, and I think even since the time of the Reformation, so that the premises of our contemporary worldview would have been incomprehensible to pre-modern humanity. Adam and Eve's sin of disobedient faithlessness, which still condemns the natural man, has wrapped itself in layers of increasingly outrageous claims. For instance, the claims, the claim that we have killed God. This is Nietzsche's claim. And he's not happy about it. He's like, he warns the people that reads him <laughs> To not be too glib and don't celebrate the death of God. This poses a huge moral problem for humanity. How do we have meaning in a world without God? This is a big problem for Nietzsche. Still, that is his claim. The claim that we have abolished human nature. This is Darwin, or for a more contemporary exponent of this, Peter Singer. The claim that we do not simply know good and evil, as the serpent had promised, but that we create good and evil, that we ourselves are the arbiters of morality. This is radically new. It is unique to the modern era. I think that Satan's response, Satan's response to the Protestant Reformation was a change of tactic. The age of superstition was over. The age of skepticism had begun. And with skepticism came an inward turn, a turn away from the external world as real and objective, and a turn inward to the human person's own inner psychology. Even our language reveals this, our contemporary language, how we talk. How many times have we heard the stock phrases, believe in yourself, be true to yourself, follow your heart, do what's right for you? I feel like these are the morals of every children's movie. Instead of truth, we talk about my truth or your truth. In conversation, instead of saying, I believe such and such, We often say, I feel like such and such. And you know what? I just did it a a minute ago when I was talking about Disney movies, children's movies. I said, I feel like we do that. That's the moral of every children's movie. We we fool ourselves into thinking that this is just courtesy, right? We don't want to come across as too dogmatic about something. So we use the language of feelings as a way to soften our point. But in reality, this is also a subtle way of ironcladding our position. Because if we frame it in terms of feelings, who would dare attack our feelings? They're our feelings. They're not subject to to judgment or debate. Our default manner of interacting in society today is to assume that we are all autonomous creators of reality, all experiencing reality through our own perceptions with no fixed eternal reality that stands in judgment over us. If this is the case, then individual experience becomes the new authority. And sure enough, lived experience Have you heard this term? Lived experience is now considered to be the final arbiter in social questions. You dare not express an opinion on abortion if you cannot conceivably go through the pregnancy process. If you're a man, you dare not have an opinion. Or on welfare if you're middle class. You dare not express an opinion on race relations if you're white. Or on gay marriage if you're straight. What this amounts to is a denial of universal truth. And a denial of reason as a means of apprehending it. What's the point of logic? 
or argument or persuasion or reading broadly to try to understand other points of view when they can all be trumped by a single person's lived experience. You can tell this is the direction someone is heading when they begin their sentence with the words, speaking as a fill-in-the-blank. This is a signal that from the outset, they're equating their opinion with their identity and that to disagree with their opinion is to attack their identity. So where did this radical individualism come from? Carl Truman, uh, who's a professor at uh, Grove City College in Pennsylvania, used to be at Westminster Seminary, I believe, Um, new book from last year called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, in which he charts this development, this turn to the inner person that now poses the, the challenge of authority to Scripture. And the development is very simple. First of all, humanity becomes psychologized. Psychology becomes sexualized. Sexuality becomes politicized. And here we are, where every sexual issue is now overtly political. And we all have to make some grand statement about it in order to participate in polite society. Truman starts with Rousseau, the French philosopher. This is uh, 18th century philosophy. The romantic poets Shelley and Blake. These guys all agreed that the Bible was actually immoral because it restricted the expressive freedom of the individual self. The Bible prohibits behaviors that arise from, in their view, natural internal desires. And therefore, it's preventing people from living their true lives. Rousseau and the romantic poets believed that a savage with no oppressive institutions restricting his behavior, was actually the model of what human society should look like. To be fully human was to act in accordance with your inner self. And if your inner self fell out of love with the person to whom you're married, then you should dissolve the marriage, and there should be no social consequences. It's in this context, and that's in the 18th century, it's in this context that we get the developments of the 19th century. Darwin, Marx, Freud. Darwin, we all know this, proposes a theory of human origins. The idea that humans evolve gradually from animal ancestors. The problems with this theory are manifold. More and more people are realizing that it's not just scientifically incredible. It's demeaning. It's literally a dehumanizing theory. And that's what I want to stress. Darwin's theory of evolution abolishes the concept of a uniquely human nature. There is no human nature. There are only individual members of a species, and the species has considerable variance, and the species is continuing to evolve into we know not what. Now, if a unifying human nature, rooted and marked, stamped by the image of God, does not exist, if there's no image of God that gives human beings inherent value, if we are all just the next generation of survivors in the cutthroat world of natural selection, on what grounds could we possibly object to or denounce conflict and violence between members of the species? There is no such ground. Do you know the title of Darwin's famous book on the origin of species? Do you know the full title? Because this is from... The 1800s when you have like giant titles on the first page. On the origin of species by means of natural selection. Or on the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Do you know who read Darwin? Well, let me say it this way. By 1920, there was one totally literate nation in the world. Practically totally literate. It was Germany. 
The Nazis knew their Darwin. The Nazis knew what Darwin meant, and they understood the consequences of his theory. Here's a hot take. There should never be a race sensitivity training session that does not start by denouncing in full Darwinian evolution. Our culture loves to talk about dignity, about equity, about fundamental human rights, but guess what? When scripture has been replaced by pseudoscience, when all authority is consigned to the individual psyche and none to God, there remains no basis for any universal transcendent value. Quickly, Marx and Freud. I have to hurry here. Marx, uh, of course, argued that human beings are at root economic beings. The economic conditions motivate human behavior. Freud argues that human beings are at root sexual beings and that sexual concerns motivate all human behavior. In fact, for Freud, human happiness is synonymous with sexual happiness. So here's what happens. Marx and Freud, they both die. Okay, again, in the 1920s, in Germany, there's a school of thought. It's called the Frankfurt School. It's a school of philosophers. And their project is to integrate Marx and Freud. From Marx, they take the idea that you can divide society into classes of oppressors and oppressed. By combining this with Freud's psychoanalysis, they get the following list of assertions. Listen to this list. Number one, all people are primarily psychological beings. Your personal identity lies within you, not in your external characteristics, and not in the external world. You are primarily psychological. Number two, psychology is primarily sexual. This is Freud. Number three, just as in in Marx's uh, philosophy, the working class was unjustly oppressed by the ruling class. This may have, by the way, have been the truth. I don't have much opinion about that. This was Marx's view. The working class is oppressed by the ruling class, economically, Marx's economics. In a similar way now, this is the Frankfurt School combining Marx and Freud, in a similar way, people's sexual desires are repressed and controlled by the oppressive structures of family and religion, most evidently summarized in the Bible. Number four, to repress a person's sexual desires is to reduce their humanity. And number five, the goal, therefore, is a kind of Marxist revolution by which... The sexually conscious groups rise up and destroy the institutions that dehumanize them. Now, this was an academic theory in 1920, but I have news for you. The sexual revolution happened. It's already over. We're just mopping up. I mean, the trans thing still has to play itself out, but there's no turning back the clock. It has happened. It's over. Here's a summary of the new orthodoxy in our world. Sexual desire is now assumed to be the key to individual human identity. A person's freedom to satisfy their desires is now treated as a human right. Any limitation placed on sexual desire becomes an attack on someone's humanity, and it is framed as such. It is no longer enough merely to tolerate libertine sexual behaviors. We're called upon to celebrate and applaud those behaviors. Corporations are expected to take a stance on every issue. Your Oreos now celebrate gay rights. Your bank pledges that together we'll fight bigotry and prejudice. Silence is not an option. You must applaud. You must salute. This is evident in the phenomenon we call coming out. When someone comes out as gay or lesbian, It is never simply an informative announcement that this person experiences uh, attractions to the same sex. It's always framed as an endorsement 
of those attractions. This is who I am, is the implication. And the expectation is that all of their real friends, all of their reasonable friends, will celebrate their sexual identity and will drink a toast to their total sexual satisfaction. You see, this is not just a broadening of acceptable sexual behavior. It's the elimination of the very category of the unacceptable. We're approaching the point where the only caveat limiting limiting total sexual license will be the very hazy concept of consent. Consent is just about the only thing left that makes any sexual encounter moral or immoral. It all hinges upon consent, which is a ridiculous position to be in now, but that's what you get when you remove external authority from our lives. In fact, any other reason for declaring an act to be immoral a reason other than consent, is viewed by the culture as itself an immorality of the worst kind, a bigoted and hateful attack on personal expression. Any personal restraint from indulgence is found to be laughable. Chastity, fidelity, celibacy are the targets of mockery. So is the virtue of modesty. When was the last time you heard like a teen pop song that was like about modesty? This would be, it's inconceivable. It's not just that the boundaries of what is considered modest are expanding as culture changes. Undoubtedly, they have since the beginning of time. There's always, I'm sure, been fluctuations in where's the line? What is modest and what is immodest? And the jury is out on whether or not there is some completely overarching human universal found in Scripture or in God's general revelation. I have no opinion about that. The point here is that that's not where we're at now. The very categories of modest and immodest have been overturned. Similarly, the absolute epidemic of pornography is regarded by the culture as normal, even healthy. And liberal Christianity, detoothed as it is, has nothing to say about it. There's a uh, notorious Lutheran priestess named Nadia Boltzweber who has argued in favor of pornography as long as it's ethically sourced, by which she means that the women who are depicted are not coerced, but they're there willingly. This is a Lutheran minister. Just as sexual norms are to be transcended and overturned, so gender itself is seen to be plastic, malleable, changeable. This is evident as far back as second-wave feminism. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir wrote in her book, The Second Sex, in 1949. Listen to this. The female is a woman insofar as she feels herself as such. Nature does not define a woman. It is she who defines herself by reclaiming nature for herself in her affectivity. So gender for Beauvoir is a feature of someone's inner psychology, not a feature of their external biology. Texts like that would prove instrumental in the development of trans ideology. If gender itself is plastic, if it's software, not hardware, as Douglas Murray would say, then it's possible for one's psychology, your interior identity, and your biology, your external body, to be mismatched to feel that you are a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body. Only a few decades ago, certainly within my lifetime, I'm 33, this would have been viewed as a mental disorder. But now we are told from the highest academic journals of science and medicine that sex and gender are indeed separable. They are distinct. And that if your external sex doesn't match your internal gender, then you should strive to alter your body through hormone treatments and through gender reassignment surgery. Now, all this is pretty heavy, isn't it? I haven't even mentioned the more insipid symptoms of this worldview where the self is the supreme authority. I haven't mentioned 
maybe things that are closer to home. So let me just list a couple. The, the total ease of our comfortable lives, the, our incessant consumerism, instead of being surrounded by death and acknowledging that we too will die, we are surrounded by trivial distractions from death. We are addicted to entertainment. Our screens soothe us through our day in the way that alcohol soothes an alcoholic. We have more access to movies and shows than we could ever possibly watch, but we're giving it our best shot anyway. Add to this the absolute snake pit of social media. Does anyone actually still think that social media benefits us in profound and spiritual ways? Is that still a viable belief? Social media is what happens when you give 30 kindergartners whistles. It's an ear-splitting cacophony of self-adulation, as pathetic as it is infantile. It's the ultimate mirror on the wall in which we can airbrush and crop and filter ourselves into exactly what we want people to see, where we are the stars of our own reality TV show. Are we feeling cute today? Or do we want to come across as disheveled? Or maybe today is an emotional day. Or maybe we have to make clear our position on some pressing social issue. Or maybe it's time to let everyone know that we're smart, capital S, and so you do that thing where you take a picture of your desk, you have like your book, and you have to match it down to get it to stay flat. You have a journal, mug of coffee, a pencil. You've underlined like one thing in the book. Click, hashtag bookworm, and then you just wait for, you wait for the likes and hearts to trickle in. And when they do, it feels really good. And if they don't, if there's no reaction to your post whatsoever, you feel intense self-loathing. The truth is that this behavior is the sign of an empty life where you have nothing to say but you're endlessly verbal and you can't stop looking in the mirror. Writ large over all these areas of contemporary life, sexuality, gender, racial animus, entertainment, narcissism is one word for the modern person. It's me, my profits, my desires, my pleasures, my body, my amusement, my fun, my gender, my morality, my choices, my image, my reality. The self is the new idol of the world. And like every idol, it is also a lie. It is an illusion. It will lead only to death. And as defiantly as unbelievers cling to this new orthodoxy of the self, it is clear that they remain sad, lost, and hopeless, caught in a nightmare in which the inner self is revealed to be a God-shaped absence. This warrants our pity We need to give the gospel to these people. Maybe you feel that you're caught in that nightmare. There is a way to wake up. It will require that you believe in something other than yourself, that you turn to an authority beyond your own psychology. It will require, in Jesus' words, taking up your cross and denying yourself, abdicating your position of authority and believing the gospel. For those of us who are Christians... It's unlikely, it's unlikely that we're ever tempted to deny the authority of Scripture outright, explicitly. But we will face the temptation of integrating Scripture with what Paul called myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Paul says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There is tremendous pressure on every Christian community to adapt itself to the expressive individual. 
to obscure the clear teaching of scripture with the jargon of critical race theory, of intersectionality, feminist theory, queer theory, trans ideology, to expand the Bible to accommodate our new technology, our purported scientific discoveries, our entertainment addictions. Liberal Christianity has already fallen to this. Let us remember what the Apostle Peter wrote. All flesh is as grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we know you are there. We know you are not silent. You have spoken clearly in your word. And that same word that could rebuke a thousand years of papal error can be our firm foundation in these strange and troubled times. You are sovereign in history, Lord. Your purposes are accomplished when cultures rise. They are accomplished when cultures implode. We do not ask, Lord, we do not ask for a return to a golden age. We ask that we would remain faithful to your word. We want you to make us people of the book, confident and winsome and unembarrassed and formidable and wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We trust you for this. In the name of your Son, amen.